Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 12 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Well, welcome to the show, guys. How are you doing? Thanks for tuning in, as always. It's a pleasure to have you here, and thanks for turning up every week and tuning into the show. i got so much good stuff lined up for you. i got so many good interviews coming. i got Dr. Robert Glover, the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, coming for a deep conversation. Jason Goldberg, motivational speaker, is uh, going to be on the show, and a whole heap more people coming up in the next few weeks. So you don't know how lucky you are. i got plenty of good stuff coming your way. Look, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're feeling good. And uh, if you're not, no problem. I've had a bit of a tough week myself. Um, feeling pretty drained emotionally, to be honest. Uh, you look at my life and you think, what the hell's that guy got to complain about? And you're right. I have nothing to complain about. I love my life. But I've always struggled with emotional issues and, uh, you know, bouts of depression and trying to stay on top of things and, um, you know, process some of my internal shit. And uh, this week's no different, okay? Uh, I can't lie to you. I've been down. I've been uh, struggling to, uh, you know, deal with a couple of things. Just having a lot of deep conversations. And when you're doing this work, you know, you do get uh, run down sometimes. Had some uh, big conversations with my partner, which is what you got to do sometimes just to check in on the relationship. But uh, it does take its toll. So I feel I feel a little bit drained. And um, you know, it's okay, but you don't want to stay there. You don't want to stay there. That's the key. It's okay to get down. We all get down. But the key is not to stay there. Um, so you've got to reach out. You've got to find some help. You've got to find someone to talk to. And uh, I'm lucky I've got a lot of great people around me You know, these days that are looking out for me and don't let me stay down in my own shit for too long, which can be annoying, but it can be great as well. i got my man Daniel Thomas, who was on the show uh, a few episodes ago, uh, who's looking after my uh health and food and so he's been keeping me honest and uh trying to get me back on track because food is something i really turn to that that's my that's my downfall when i start feeling a little bit uh you know confronted uh emotional when i'm dealing with my shit uh, i'll turn to food just to get that hit you know when i i feel down i, I want to replace that feeling so i go to food sugar carbs whatever you want to call it so that's my relationship with food, and Daniel's really highlighted that over the last week or so, that uh, I've been eating a lot of shit to try and overcome those emotional emotional things. But hey, it's all good. You know, I want you to know you're not alone, and I also don't want to bullshit you guys. I'm not here to, to be the guru. I'm not here to have all the answers. You know, I'm in this work, and I'm, you know, doing my thing and battling through life and trying to figure it all out just like you guys, so... Uh, you're not alone we're in this together and that's the nice thing you know we're in this together and we're figuring it all out and we're um you know we're going to get there so thank you for tuning in and uh you know thanks for being there for me and thanks for supporting the show i got a great guy for you lined up this week you're very lucky to hear tom fitzsimons speak this week tom was born in northern ireland uh right during the height of the conflict so he grew up in a very, uh, very hostile environment, and he's going to tell you some stories about that. And uh, really had a lot of anger, and so he turned to alcohol as his uh, vice and uh, became an alcoholic, didn't deal with his issues to a little bit later on in life, and he found running, long-distance running in particular, was uh, the way he was going to recover from his addictions. And so he didn't just run marathons, he ran across America. He ran from San Francisco to New York, which is a phenomenal achievement. 
Uh, so I sit down with Tom, we have a deep conversation. Nothing is off the table uh, when we're talking about addiction and alcohol and violence. And you're going to get a lot out of this one. It's a deep conversation, but I think you're going to enjoy it. We joined the conversation when I asked Tom to explain a little bit more about what it was like growing up during the conflict in Northern Ireland. So I hope you enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Tom Fitzsimons. Well, I think when, when there's a classic thing, Nathan, when you're in it, you're in it. You don't realise how bad it is. And it's only when I removed myself and came to England that I realised how tough it was. So long story short, um, uh, uh, Catholics and Protestants uh, having problems for years since partition in the 20s. Um, uh, and, and it got to it came to a head in the 1960s where um, it was a bit, a bit like ethnic cleansing. I don't want to be too dramatic here, but there was Protestant uh, gangs going up the streets of Catholics and burning their houses and doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and it was pretty, you know, being a Catholic in Northern Ireland, it was a pretty tough place to be. Um, British Army came over to help us, didn't help us, ended up turning against us and ended up taking the side of the, the Unionists. Um, so I grew up as an Irish Republican, I would, I would class myself. Um, I grew up with a nationalistic view of Irish Catholics should belong to Dublin. That's where we should be. We should always be part of the southern state. So our upbringing was very much against the occupation of the British Army. Um, and, and it was... Uh, don't get me wrong, we weren't as bad as some people who were involved in the Troubles in a heavy way, but we were certainly brought up to believe that the British occupation of Ireland was not acceptable. So I grew up with a fairly angry uh, mentality towards occupation. Um, I also grew up with a fairly angry um, hatred of one section of the community. And this is quite hard for me to say this now, I haven't been living in England for 31 years, but... Um, the hatred that was, was it, we weren't sat down and taught hatred, but it was certainly expected from us that we wouldn't have Protestant friends. You know, we wouldn't have people who weren't Catholic friends. Um, we wouldn't mix with kids from other schools. Um, we wouldn't um, associate with uh, other football teams. If there was a Protestant football team, we wouldn't play against them. And if we did play against them, it would be expected we would fight against them. So we grew up with a very much um, hatred, I think, is what we were brought up with. Um, and that was something that certainly was a part of my identity um, growing up as, as, an, as a Northern Irish Catholic. Um, we had a lot of hatred. Um, we had a lot of pride in, our, in who we were as Catholics. So I was very religious. I was an altar boy. I you know, went to church three times a week. I was... I was very active in that community. So growing up in Northern Ireland was probably um, one of those um, places where, yeah, I, 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 looking back on it, I think it was absolutely horrendous to bring children up in that environment, um, to to expect children to to thrive in that environment was was foolish. Um, and so I, you know that was that was probably how it was on a day to day basis of waking up, watching the news, seeing who was dead, who was shot, who was blown up, walking to school through a Protestant housing estate with fear that I was going to get beaten up and often was beaten up. Um, you know, have a stones thrown at you first thing in the morning and be spat on because you're a Catholic. Um, all those sorts of things. So I grew up with anxiety, I think was probably the best word to describe it. Is there a particular story that 
you can remember that encapsulates what it was like uh, uh, being involved in a, some kind of conflict or something that you can remember? Yeah, I, I used to run the gauntlet every morning going to school. I, I went to a Catholic school, which was just on the other side of a Protestant housing estate. Um, and it was, so I had to walk through the housing estate every morning. And I was always told by my parents, zip your coat up so they can't see your school uniform. Because as soon as they saw the blue and the yellow school uniform, they would know I was a Catholic. Well, I was 10 years of age, and I'll be honest with you, Nathan, I was a little bit, I'm not hiding who I am. I'm not hiding my religion. Um, so I walked through the housing estate with my uniform showing, um, and it caused me no end of grief. I, you know, I was, I'd be stung. But this one particular day on the way home, I got cornered by probably about 12 young men and they were going to give me a bit of a baiting. Uh, and they, they started throwing rocks at me to start with, and bricks and bottles. Uh, and I started to run. And all of a sudden, um, you know, the fear of me was like, this is it, I'm going to die. Um, and all of a sudden, a big hand grabbed hold of me. And the local shopkeeper grabbed, grabbed me and pulled me into his shop. And they were bottling his shop, and they were throwing bricks at his windows, and, and they were attacking his shop because he'd helped a Catholic. Uh, and, and he rang my father and my father had to, you know, he couldn't even come anywhere near the shop. This man had to walk me from the shop um, back into the supermarket or the shopping centre so that I could get protection from my father. Um, so that, that whole incident was really brought it home to me that this was a very dangerous place to be. Um, at any stage, a brick or a bottle could have smashed my head in and killed me. And, and they didn't look like they were worried about that. They looked like that would have been an acceptable outcome for them. So I remember the hatred in their eyes. And it kind of got, it kind of got me to re, it reinforce my hatred of them, if that if that's makes sense. Um, it certainly reinforced my views on Protestant people at the time. Um, and so, yeah, it was, but that was almost... Every couple of months, you would have something along those lines that would be happening. But you would certainly be spat on on a, on a weekly basis uh, going through the housing estate. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's hard to comprehend for me to comprehend that. And it seems like a very natural response to have that kind of hatred back again. What, what else would you, how else would you respond as a little kid? And I think it's important to remember that my section of the community wasn't as, uh, as, as, bad as you know the falls road or the shankle road um you know this wasn't west belfast this was north belfast so this was quite a um uh, it was still a working class area but there certainly wasn't the the toughness of of central belfast where where it was really tough so i i consider myself lucky that we didn't have to endure what they endured Mm. Uh, but it was still it still wasn't a nice environment and i only realized that when i left the environment and i came to live in england and you realise that that wasn't a normal way to grow up, you know, growing up with that amount of hatred. When it compounds, when you become a teenager at a young age, your early teens, you lose your father. Yeah. And how does that impact you? Well, the, the, move, the move to England um, was supposed to be a fresh start, uh, Nathan. It was, my father had lost his, his job in Northern Ireland um, and I'd been out of work for four years. So we had quite tough poverty where my father wasn't working my mother worked full-time um, my father had his issues with drugs he was a drug addict um, and, and really struggled with life and looking back on his struggles with addiction I could I can understand it 
And this was a guy who was working in the shipyard in Belfast, uh, which was 97% Protestant. And he was the, one of the only few Catholics that worked there. Um, he was being threatened every day for his life. Um, you know, there was, there was death threats made to him every day about him being a Catholic. So I can almost understand, although I don't accept why he did it, I can understand his drug addiction. So losing his job was was quite a shame for us um, living in that poverty. But the move to England was supposed to be a full change. This is it. We're going to move to England. It's all going to be different. We're going to have a nice house. Um, Dad's going to be okay. Mum's going to get a job. Uh, and everyone's going to be rosy. Well, unfortunately, moving to England was probably the worst thing we could have done because being an Irishman in England um, in the 1980s was... Um, I, I would I would compare it to um, a Palestinian moving to Israel. Um, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Um, they didn't want us. We weren't wanted uh, as an Irish family. Um, I remember some relatives coming over shortly after we moved to England and um, we'd been there, probably been in the housing estate for about a year and somebody came, one of our relatives was visiting and said, um, do you know where the Fitzsimons family lived? They were lost. And the fact that people went, I've n- I, no, I've never heard of them. And, and they went, it's an Irish family. Oh, the Irish family. Oh, yeah, they're down there on the left-hand side. Everybody knows where the Irish family is. Um, and it was like, yeah, we're the scum. We're just scumbags. Um, and at a very early age, coming to England, it was violence. You know, every time I opened my mouth with my stupid Irish accent, I got punched. Every time a bomb went off in Northern Ireland and a British soldier got injured, I got attacked. I blame the Irish kids. So it was already a volatile time for me um, from 11 to 13. Um, I didn't fit in. I lost my voice. I didn't speak. Um, I had very few friends. Um, and it kind of destroyed that whole confidence I had as a, as a Belfast kid. I really lost my identity as being an Irishman because it was so so dangerous to be an Irishman in England. And then um, April 25th, 1988, my father went to bed um, having drunk a bottle of whiskey and choked to death um, on, on his own vomit. Uh, being in that situation of in a strange country um, with no family support uh, and then wake being woken by a family member to tell me that my father was no longer with us was just absolutely devastating um at 13 years of age i think he, despite you know my father wasn't a perfect guy but he was still my father and and having that male role model ripped from your grasp um you know who's going to teach me how to tie a tie who was going to teach me how to shave who was going to teach me how to um, chat up girls? Who was going to teach me how to be a man? Who was going to teach me these things? Um, what were all questions I asked, and it was never going to be answered because there was nobody to teach me. Um, and who was going to who's going to protect me? My father was my protector. Um, who was going to protect me? Who was going to hold me? Who was going to take me to snooker and you know teach me all these things that he knew and have a laugh with me? I was. I was lost. I think that's the day, and, and the video that I shared with you um, shows how lost I was. And I think I described 13 as being my that day, April 25th, 1988, was the day my childhood finished. Um, 
my childhood was was ended on that day. I I became a very awkward man on April twenty fifth, nineteen eighty eight. So. That had a massive impact on the, on my future and how I was going to develop as a as a as a young man in England. And how does it play out as you go through your teenage years? How does that play out? Uh, alcohol was always there. It came, came into my life quite quickly after my father died because I was angry, um, and uh, I went in for a night out. And there was a thing called ten pence a pint night, which is um, quite a strange concept, but basically ten pence. Um, for a pint of lager or cider um, and you could drink as much as you want 10 pence per pint so it was dirt cheap um, and I was 13 years of age and I went in and I went with a five pound note and was ready for a night out and it descended into violence quite quickly um, so I got in my first bar brawl on my first night out in a nightclub um, which, which culminated in uh, me throwing somebody under a bus um, at 13 years of age so there was rage, Nathan. It was, you know, thankfully the bus driver stopped, but it was just pure rage, and that rage continued probably for twenty years. Of why had this happened to me, um, and and what had I done wrong? So take me. Um, so alcohol becomes the thing where you find your voice. It gives you the confidence that you've lost. Takes a bit of the pain away. It becomes a, a friend. It, yeah, it, um, it became my best friend. Alcohol became. 100% my best friend. Um, when when you go through a period of, of bullying and racism and and not feeling um, part of part of society, so you lose your identity. Um, alcohol is a great vehicle um, to to carry you back to where you think you should be, um, and it was quite quick in how quickly it gets you there. It's it's, it's almost like a, a sports car in, in transporting you to where you think you should be. Um, you know, being able to speak to girls and, and being able to speak to, um, you know, anyone at a pub, um, having the confidence to stand my ground and speak my truth. Um, alcohol allowed me to do that. Alcohol gave me everything I needed at 13 and 14 and 15 years of age. With no therapy yeah. or no psychological work required. You can just have a couple of drinks and you're there. You're in the place you want to be. You're 100%. It just transports you to uh, to where you need to be. And, uh, you know, remember, this is 1988. This is before um, we had any understanding or, sorry, it's before we, we accepted that there was another way to help children who had lost their parents. Um, you know, the British are very good at saying, um, stiff up a lip, um, just get on with it, um, don't show your emotion. And I think the Irish are very good at it as well, that we don't show those emotions, we don't talk about our, our loss, we just get on with it. And in 1980s, that's that's what was done. It was, it was a case of, don't worry about your mum not having a husband, she'll marry again soon. Um, you'll get a new dad. And it was like, what are you talking about? My mother won't marry again, and she, she didn't marry again. It's completely um, inhuman. It is, and it's, and it, but it's, 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 I think we're seeing this, um, this play out in society now. So my age group, I mean, I'm 42 now, but I'm seeing it playing out, and this is suicide figures of men um, where, where we're taught not to show our emotions. Um, and, and so our emotional development was taught not to show our emotions. And who's the biggest suicide rate? It's 35 to 45. 
Um, uh, you know, and it's, it's there's something in that, Nathan, that that we were taught not to um, get involved in, in emotion, to try and keep those emotions so quiet, um, to to hide them, to mask them, to be um, a, a man when really we were just children, and that's what that's what ended up happening. I became a man when I was a child. And where was your mum in all this? You, you were pretty close to your mum. Yeah, I think we, we got to a point where she just didn't have time for us. She, she just wasn't in a position where she, she could emotionally give, give me anything more than she, she was already trying to do. Um, and I, to be fair, I tried to be, um, I tried to keep as much from her as I could. Um, I stepped into the, uh, to, to the father role. Um, I tried to be a man. I, I left school at 14 years of age unofficially and went to work on a building site. So I tried to cause her as little problems as I could. Uh, I wasn't being brought home by the police on a regular basis. It, you know what I mean? I wasn't being disruptive. I was out, out working and, 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 you know, I was on the building sites from the age of 14 and um, education went. And, and she, she kind of just accepted that, that Tom needs to become a man. And she kind of left it at that that you go off and do what you need to do and it kind of worked as well because I was I was even though I was drinking too much at 13 and 14 years of age and getting involved in trouble I wasn't bringing trouble home you know I wasn't I wasn't bringing stuff home to her I was I was trying to um, be as uh, as much of a man as I could so I was dealing with all my own stuff I was dealing with all my own problems so she wasn't really hearing half of what was going on so in her eyes I was just becoming a man and I did that quite well. I did that transition quite well. Um, it was only when I got to 18 years of age that things really started to break down between me and my mum, um, where I became quite violent in the house uh, and quite violent uh, with people around me. Um, so, you know, that's when things really started to break down. So if we fast forward to the moment when you realised you had a problem with violence or alcohol, is there a particular moment you remember that enough was enough? Um, yeah, um, my daughter um, was one year one year old at the time. I, I have four children, so um, I have a twenty year old, an eighteen year old, a twelve year old, and an eleven year old. So um, the two older boys are two previous relationships, but I have uh, my daughter, my son live with me now. Um, with my partner Zoe, so we had a, a situation in the um, in the house where I was drinking quite heavily. Or I was about one year old, um, and I became violent in the house, and I became really aggressive. Um, and Zoe had said something to me, and, and I went to attack Zoe, my partner, um, and she hid she hid in the bathroom, and I kicked the door in the bathroom door and. And what I found on the other side of the door was was probably the light bulb moment for me. Um, I, as I got through the door, um, she was hiding in the bath, covered in a shower curtain with my one-year-old daughter. And it was at that moment that I realized I'd lost control of my life. It was that moment I realized, you know what, this has to, I have to get this under control. This can't continue. I can't have my daughter growing up hiding in a bath covered in a shower curtain. This is just ridiculous. This needs to stop. Um, and it was around about that time that things did start to change. I realised, I saw the horror 
in Zoe's eyes and, and my daughter. I mean, she can't remember this incident. Obviously, she was one, but I, 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 I it, it horrifies me when I think back to it. I think that's the best visual I can give you. Those other incidents, but that was the the one that really stuck in my mind. That do you know what? This this has to change. I can't do this anymore. Um, I need to start making changes in my life. Um, so so I did. So what was the first step you took in that moment? Um, the first step I took in that, in that moment was to um, wake up the next morning, sober up, and and do nothing. Um, because that's what we do as drunks. We we wake up the next morning and pretend it didn't happen. So I kind of buried my head in the sand for a bit. Um, and then um, financially, I, I realized the full impact of my drinking. Uh, one day when I went to the bank and realized that I spent £20,000 in, in six months worth of, um, of drinking. So there was that added to the problems as well. So those two incidents really started to say to me, right, we need to sort this out. We need to get this back under control. So um, I, I decided I was going to start running. I said, right, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to start running. And my wife looked at me and went, she went, you must be ridiculous, Tom. You're 19 stone. You know, you haven't run for, I played football when I was 19. Um, I was 31. I hadn't done any exercise for years. Um, and, I said, no, I'm going to start running. I'm going to do a duathlon, which was um, a 5K run, um, a 20K bike ride, and a 5K run to finish. She says, when are you going to do this? I said, I'm going to do it in September. And this was in the March. And I decided, right, okay, this, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. But deep down, I think, as a drunk, I thought to myself, do you know what? This will keep her quiet for six months. And it'll, give, it'll, it'll give me some time to get my drinking back under control. And, and I'll be okay. This is the way it'll work. This is the way it'll plan she out. She was on your back about your drinking quite a bit. Yeah, she, I mean, she was ready for leaving. I think she was, you know, this can't go on, Tom. This this has to happen. This has to change. Um, so it, was, it was, got to a point where I thought to myself, do you know what? If I do this, maybe I can just, you know, cut myself some slack and, and get myself in a position where um, uh, I've got um, some breathing space uh, and I can get, my drinking back under control because of course I'm not an alcoholic because alcoholics don't have jobs I was working in the construction industry alcoholics don't drive company cars or wear a suit to work and I was doing all those things so in my mind still I wasn't an alcoholic so I started running 19 stop 44 inch waist and got quite good quite quickly and I'm not saying I'm, I was ever a uh, you know a, a 20, 20 minute 10, 5k or anything like that or a, a two hour two and a half hour marathon runner but I, I made progress quite quickly and I lost two or three stone in the first six months of weight and, and I was I was doing okay um, but what I realized I was doing I was I would run six miles and then I would come home and drink six pints I run eight miles and drink eight pints you know by the time I got the half marathon level this was great this was easy I could control this. Um, so all I was doing was, was justifying my drinking by saying, well, at least I run. At least I'm not fat anymore. Um, uh, you know, but my partner says, yeah, but you're still behaving like an asshole. You're still behaving like an absolute idiot. So uh, that continued for about a year of me pretending I was, I was fixed, um, you know, running marathons and, and doing all these things and, the, the, the addicts do which is covering things over 
until one day I, I ended up in the pub and my wife told me, she said, Tom, you've not run for months. You, you know, you've been in the pub for a month and you've not run. You're not running at all. You're just drinking again. You have to stop drinking. So August 27, 2007, I, I went through the rehab again uh, at home with my wife. And, um, yeah, I got through from August 27, 2007 until today, nearly ten and a half or nine and a half years later. I've not had another drink since that day. Um, so it's been a bit of a roller coaster to get to that point. Um, and it, it was one of those things that when I when I sat with Zoe and on August 27th, she still didn't believe it was going to be different. She says, well, why would it be any different now? You know, you're, you've told me this before. Um, but something had changed on August 27th. It was just, it felt right. I couldn't continue with it. Um, and uh, I, I quite enjoyed the process of getting well again, getting fit, getting healthy. Um, and within, you know, a year, um, she trusted me again that this was it. I was going to be sober for the rest of my life. Um, so, and, and we've kicked on from there. So, leading up to when you started doing the running and getting into getting fit and getting healthy, had you done any work with a therapist or anything at that point, or it was just the running was was going to be the the cure? I, I went to see a, um, a, a company in, in Wakefield who were alcohol and drug specialists. And, and I arrived at this place and I managed to get an appointment to see these people and, and I went in and I, I literally broke I broke down in front of this young lady and, and told her everything that I was going through and, and, and you know I needed her help and I was, I was willing and I was committed to getting support and she turned around to me and said Tom this is fantastic um, we'll be in touch and it was like she'd ripped my heart out so what do you mean you'll be in touch well, Tom, you have to wait. There's a waiting list. Yeah, but I need treatment now. No, it doesn't work like that, Tom. You're going to have to wait. It'll be at least three weeks before we ring you. Um, so at that moment, it lost me. I went back drinking after that. Um, but and, and it was a great excuse for me because I said, well, I've been for help and there isn't any. Um, so I never went back. And I was determined through my own recovery, I wasn't going to rely on anyone else uh, me and my partner were going to do it on our own. I wasn't going to rely on some, you know, drug or alcohol worker who was having a bad day to to put my to put my uh, recovery in jeopardy. Um, and that's unfortunately what happens. You're reliant on how good your therapist is, or how good your um, your, your recovery worker is, or what sort of day they're having, um, what sort of clients they've seen that day. Uh, and sometimes you go in and the service just isn't up to scratch, Nick. It isn't, a bit, you know, it isn't up to scratch. So for me, it was, no, I'm not going back to therapists. I'm not going to go back to to people who really don't understand what I'm going through. Um, I'm a firm believer in if you're going to work with somebody, you've got to embody what you teach. And, and I got the distinct impression that some of these people were telling people to stop drinking but getting absolutely pissed on a, on a night time. Yeah. And, and, and for me, that doesn't embody what we teach. Um, if, you're, if you're going to help somebody with an addiction, you really got to live it. You know, you've, and the person that you're talking to has got to know that you live it. Um, it's a bit like going to a personal trainer who's eight stone overweight. Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it doesn't work. So do you, did it, you eventually that find that person for you? Uh, my wife. Right. My partner. She was, she was the, 
the rock that I needed to base everything on. Um, uh, and I, I've since added people over the last few years where I've added um, some um, a, a, a personal coach. I'm in men's work, so I'm part of a men's group. Um, I do men's work every fortnight. Um, I've got a coach who, who I call my guru, even though he doesn't like being called a guru, but he's my um, like my spiritual teacher. Um, so I've added people as the years have gone on. But at that, in those early days, it was me and Zoe against the world. It was me and Zoe against everyone. It was me and Zoe against the addiction recovery section. I, I didn't want to do Alcoholics Anonymous or, or anything like that because it was anonymous. Why the hell did I have to be anonymous? Um, you know, I was sick. I wasn't. It wasn't a defect of character. It wasn't. You know, I couldn't hand myself over to God and expect Him to save my life. Um, so all the things, and I know it's more in depth at AA than I've just alluded to. But um, at that particular moment in my life, it didn't speak to me. Um, this doesn't work in my eyes. In my opinions, it wouldn't work for me. Um, it doesn't work for lots of people. Um, because it's anonymous. I don't want to be anonymous. I've never been anonymous. Um, so we were determined that we were going to come up with a plan and come up with a solution to sustainable recovery, which is what we've established. We've established sustainable recovery. Um, and, and part of the reason why I started The Addiction Architect was that I believe that coaching uh, rather than therapy is uh, is as good a thing as anything for recovery. So tell me about the difference because, on those two things. Well, for me, um, I I could I have I have friends of mine who are in constant therapy, uh, and they never seem to come up with a strategy to move forward. It's it's therapy after therapy session, and it's different therapies and it's different therapists and it's it's digging deep and finding everything about your past, uh, but there never comes up with a strategy as to how to move you forward. Whereas working with a coach, we know you've got a shit background. We know that you've had problems. The fact that you're an alcoholic, no, you, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, there is some sort of a childhood trauma that you've been dealing with, um, whether it be a significant trauma um, in, in the world's eyes or whether it's just a significant trauma in your eyes it's still a trauma but at some stage you've got to draw a line and say right we need to move forward with this we need to come up with some strategies to move you forward so for me that's the way I do it I, I accept that people have got issues that need to be talked about and therapy is a good place for some people so what are some of the specific but, things that worked for you when you started working with a coach or, or the, the moment that things started to go right for you what were some of the, the, the specifics that worked I, I, the, one, one of the best bits of advice that was ever given to me by, by my coach was I was I was giving him all the excuses as to why I wasn't making progress and he turned around to me and he went stop it stop it and it was those two words that I thought, you know what, they may just be the words that, that are going to kick me in the actually. And every now and again, I use those words on myself when I catch myself going back into victim mode, going back into poor old Tom, lost his dad at 13 years of age, was racially abused, um, uh, you know, had no emotional intelligence, was all these different things, alcoholic, 
and I go back into victim mode and every now and again I say stop it but then there's also another thing that was taught to me um, about staying down and I've mentioned it in the movies that I, uh, the films that I shared with you where the, the guy that I was working with said to me stay down it's okay to stay down and when you're ready get back up but you can stay down and a, a therapist tends not to say that to you they try to get you out of that staying down. And sometimes a coach just needs to say, okay, if you're in that position, stay there for a while and tell me how it feels. Tell me the story about how you ended up reliving that childhood of those teenage years that you lost recently. Um, 2016 is what I would class as my, my worst year of recovery to date, but also my best year. Um, things started to unfold early early January, February, where um, I, I quit my speaking career and um, I quit my uh, personal training business. And, and I was literally just cutting things out of my life. I was literally isolating myself. But I didn't see it. And I didn't see it for a long time. And I went back to the construction industry, an industry where I, I absolutely detest it. Um, I hated I hated working with the people. I hated the 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 work. I hated the uh, atmosphere. I hated everything about it. But I went because I needed the money. And by August, um, I was I was broken. I was literally broken. And I realised um, I've realised since that that particular period was um, I was acting like a child. I was acting like a thirteen year old. So quitting things. For no reason, it's just stuff that a thirteen-year-old does. Um, going to do a job just for money was something that I did when I was thirteen and fourteen years of age. Um, sitting up at night eating ice cream and and, and cornflakes was something a thirteen-year-old does. So there was all these things that patterns of behaviour that I realised that I was I, I'd gone back to being thirteen the day my childhood stopped, and I had to get to a point where. I, I needed to move forward with my 42 years and I couldn't I couldn't move forward until I'd been 13 uh, and that's when the coach said to me stay down um, be 13 do the things that 13 year olds do so I sulked and I cried and I um, got to the point where suicide was an option um, where I wanted to throw myself off a motorway bridge um, and, and these are all things that probably I should have gone through when I was 13. These are all emotions that I should have gone through at that time had I not stunted that growth, had I not been told you're a man, you've got to move forward. So that whole period of, of from August all the way through to November was just a complete cloud of being a 13-year-old boy again and going back into... 13 year old mode of of um, hatred and anger and frustration and and sadness and and all the things that I should have done when my father died um, I, I did them all last year so in the end it was kind of perfect and that's why I, I describe it as my worst year and also my best mm. year because when I came through it in around about November time um, I had clarity I was making decisions as a 42-year-old and not as a 13-year-old. I, I, I started my new business and, 
and, and started doing things that were 42-year-old stuff, not 13. Um, my conversations with my wife became adult again. My conversations with my children became parent-child, not child, you know, not brother-sister. Um, you know, I wasn't their brother anymore. I was their dad. Um, so all those relationships changed, and I became 42 almost overnight. Uh, and it was literally that emotional void. I describe it as that, that gap in my soul that was lost from that emotional trauma was filled. It was like that, you know, it had been, my soul had been topped up with something that had been missing. And it was missing that 13-year-old section. It missed that little bit where, yeah, you need to have the ice cream. You need to have to play football. You need to have those sorts of moments in your life. You need to feel awkward around girls. You need to do these things, Tom, in order for you to move on and be a man. So it, it became my best year ever in, in the fact that I've healed myself. I managed to heal that wounded 13-year-old boy. I was able to talk to him and say, do you know what, Tom, you didn't do anything wrong. This wasn't your fault. You know, this wasn't your fault. You didn't kill your father. You know, you, you couldn't have done anything about it. Um, you did the best you could with the tools you were given. Um, and now I've got better tools and I'm able to be 42. So how do you, when you reflect back on your childhood now and that time, how does it feel? Um, I think I need to be kinder to myself that, you know, often when we when we look back on childhood, if you've had any sort of trauma, we look back on it in black and white. Um, I think that's an old Tony Robbins thing where you go back and, you know, the, the bad things are in black and white. Um, and my, my childhood was in black and white. Uh, now when I look back, I, I can see, you know, going to the football with my dad at Cliftonville Football Club was my favourite favorite football club in Belfast. I remember those days of going and, and after the game, going and meeting my auntie and uncle at their house and having tea and cake. And that's in colour. You know, I remember going to uh, serve on the altar at church and it's now back in colour. Um, so I'm looking back on things now and it's not in black and white anymore. It's It's almost like, yeah. We did have good times. It wasn't all toughness. It wasn't all sadness. It was. It was. There were some bloody brilliant moments in my childhood. You know, there were some moments where I look back and think, "Yeah, that was phenomenal." You know, planting a cherry tree in our garden and, you know, playing football against it, and then at the age of nine, realizing how beautiful it was. You know, those moments of you only look back on them now but I remember standing with this cherry tree and it was a football post in my eyes mm-hmm. at eight years of age it was that's all it was it was a football post and then it, it, it the cherries blossomed uh, and the, the leaves blossomed and it was like wow that's absolutely so beautiful and, and I remember standing there as a, as a young boy looking at it and going that's fantastic and and it was you know I'm looking back on those moments I'd forgotten about that I'd forgotten about those beautiful moments in my childhood of, you know, summer nights out with my friends and, you know, playing football till the sun went down and, you know, coming home for sandwiches and, 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 you know, a glass of juice at lunchtime and then going back out with your friends. It was that stereotypical um, 1970s childhood, which was outside, sunshine, baking hot, sunburn, all those things that I remember, great winters with deep snow, making snowmen. And I start to remember my childhood as being in colour and being okay. 
I'm not saying it was great, but I'm saying it's okay now. Mm. As opposed to what I used to say, which was my childhood was terrible. And it wasn't. My childhood was okay. And you don't just see the, the traumatic moments. I, I, I tend not to look at them anymore. I tend to um, understand. I'm a firm believer in life is unfolding as it should. And I understand now that those moments of my childhood um, are, are important. Uh, maybe they were a bad thing, but maybe they were a good thing. Maybe they, they got me to a point now where I can help hundreds of people with addiction. Maybe they got me to a point where my relationships with my children are far more solid than they ever would be. Maybe it's got me to the point where I'm, I'm, I'm a better partner to my wife, um, that I'm a better man to my, my fellow brothers. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a better individual, I'm a better human being because of the things that happened to me, um, not in spite of the things that happened to me. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important thing to, to remember that, you know, life happens uh, and it's, it, it can be a great thing. And it, or it might not be a great thing, but it depends how you look at it. And so for me now, I'm looking back and thinking, yeah, it was a childhood, and I, it's got me to who I am today. Um, and I, I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I'm now nearly ten years sober. You know, an ultra marathon runner, a, a good father, um, a businessman. I'm very proud of the fact that despite all those things that have gone on, um, I am I am who I am. Yo, you should be proud, and you're you're a survivor. And uh, I'm interested what your purpose is now. What gets you out of bed in the morning now? Um, what gets me out of bed now is is when I, I when I did my run across America. I did it for those people who couldn't run, for those people who couldn't get sober, and that was my driving force back then in 2013. It was, you know, if I'm going to get up every day and run 30 miles a day for 100 days. Um, I've got to have my reason, my why. And my why is to help those who can't help themselves. Um, and that's continued into my work now um, where I try and help as many people with addictions as I can. Um, and it's not always addiction. It can be anything in life. So I get people ringing me on a regular basis of, Tom, this is happening in my relationship. What will you do? Um, Tom, this is happening um, in my with my children. Um, you know, or I'm having a problem with alcohol, drugs, or gambling. Can you help me? So I'm trying to give that back, that knowledge, uh, and I'm trying to to add value to as many people's lives as I can. I think that's the thing for me is adding value um, to other people's lives, but also adding value to my own life. Um, so that's a purpose. Is is con- constant evolution, continually evolving as a man, um, not accepting that this is it. Um, and I think that's my purpose, is to find out how far I can go as a man. Um, how much more spiritual can I become? How many more people can I help? Um, how strong a father can I become? Um, and really about growth, human growth, uh, human evo- evolution um, is something I'm fairly passionate about. Um, I'm not ever going to sit here and say I'm the finished article. I think on my Twitter handle I put, father warrior runner unfinished (laughs) you know i'm unfinished because this isn't the finished article it can be the finished article if it is the finished article i'd be quite disappointed because i 100 percent believe we all have more in us than we than we'll ever imagine 
um, and that's constant evolution. And I think if we all start to think about constant evolution, we've got half a chance. I like the phrase that there's no top to the mountain. You know, we're climbing yeah, this mountain, no. but there's no top to the mountain. And I'm guessing for addicts or alcoholics, becoming sober looks like the top of the mountain. It can do, and it's and it's quite frustrating in, in the recovery movement where um, people, well, I'm sober. And, and uh, there was a quote from a, an ultra runner, Charlie Engel. Um, I don't know if you're aware of Charlie Engel, great guy, um, great ultra runner. And he, he ended up, sadly, ended up in prison for a year, mortgage or something, fraud or whatever it was, ended up being made a scapegoat, ended up in prison for 12 months. But he wrote in his prison diaries, um, sobriety without action is pointless. And that spoke to me that it was no good me just being sober. That top of the mountain, as we as you discussed, isn't good enough. You know, it's 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 when you look back on it that there's 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 other mountains. There's always another mountain. You know, as a child, I remember playing on what we called the big hill. And the big hill was monstrous, and we used to race up it, and we we used to sledge on it. And I went back when I was in my 30s to Belfast to see the big hill, and I realised that the big hill is just no more than a slope. <laughs> and and it's it, it's that clarity, it's that experience that when you go back to becoming sober, you realise that it's just a little bit of a slope. You know, there's other mountains to climb. There's bigger things you can do. So for me, for sobriety, the the worst thing that people say to me is, well, I'm sober, that's it. No, it's not. This is it's only just starting when you become sober. When I became sober, I realized, hold on here, my full potential is just waiting now. It's waiting. It's now uncovered, and it's there for me to see. And it's almost like the, you know, I, I have seen the promised land, and it looks good. Um, you know, it's it's looking out on on your sobriety, and you look out on it like a big pasture land and say, wow, I'm going to delve right into this. I'm going to go running as far as I can into this, and I ain't going to stop until I, I, I think I've seen everything and done everything I need to do. And I hope, Nathan, that's when I'm 140, um, and, you know, with, you know, 97 grandkids and great-grandkids and, and, and passing on that knowledge for another 100 years, I really want it to be that, that, that powerful this next section of my life wants to be that powerful. I can't just sit and say, well, I'm 10 years sober. I'm happy with that because I'm not. I'm not happy with 10 years. I want it to be 20 years. I want it to be full. I want it to be life-affirming. Life I want people to look at it and go, wow, if he's done that in 10 years of sobriety, what can I do? You know, so it's it's one of those things that, uh, I'm, you know, there is a mountain to climb, but every time you get to the top, there's another one. And it's fantastic. And learning it's to not love short. Learning to love the fact that there is no top to the mountain. It sounds like you've you've really learned to love the fact that this is a constant evolution. Getting sober is one yeah. thing, but now just continually growing and finding out more about myself, getting more spiritual, you know, finding out yeah, more I mean, ways to give my gifts. Running was a great way of doing that. I mean, running, I started off with 10Ks and then I realized you could do a half marathon. And then I heard about marathons. Obviously, everyone knows about marathons. But then when I got into the marathon road, um, I heard about these things called ultramarathons. And I'd never heard of an ultramarathon. What the hell is an ultramarathon? Oh, it's it's over 30 miles. Okay, I'll go and do that. So did the ultramarathon. Then I heard about this thing called the Marathon de Sables, which is a run across the Sahara Desert. Um, and I did that in 2010, three that? years after starting. 
that was 155 miles wow. over six days <laughs> through the Sahara, through the Sahara Desert. Um, it's classed as the toughest foot race on earth. I don't. I think that's a handle that's probably not true anymore, but it's pretty tough. It's in the middle of the Sahara Desert mm. in 50 degrees. Um, so I did that in 2010, three years after starting running. Wow. Um, and then, and then I, but then I realized that that wasn't even the potential. You know, there was still more to do. So running across America, um, you know, 100, 100, uh, 100 days on the road, 30 miles a day for 100 days. Um, but do you know what, Nathan? I came home from America and realized that there's still more. Wow. There's got to be, there's still more to do. And I think that's the danger that people people think that I've arrived, this is it, I've done everything I need to do. Uh, I want people to start getting to that point and realizing that, wow, this is just a stepping stone. This is just another stepping stone to another section of my life, another chapter in the book. Um, and I've realized this now that 10 years in, almost 10 years in, it's just the end of a chapter. It's like, you know, there's, there's another chapter and another chapter. And, and will I run another continent? Probably not. But will I do another challenge? Probably so. Will I probably write another book? Yes. Will I, you know, will I continue to evolve as a father? Yes. Will I look back on my run across America in 10 years' time and think, wow, that was pretty cool, but look at what else you've done in the last 10 years. Yes, I hope so. So it's all these things that we have to get our head around the constant evolution um, this the, there's no such thing as the finished article and how do you balance um, that with being in the moment and celebrating your wins like it's one thing to kind of keep striving more and more and more it's another thing to be able to stop and acknowledge your achievements and and bathe in them for a little bit and feel that satisfaction yeah that, that's that really I, I must admit that was something i struggled with after america um i didn't celebrate it enough and it's something I'm very clear on my clients I mean, with my clients um, through addiction we celebrate one week of sobriety we celebrate you know if they if they wake up at a, uh, on a morning and meditate we celebrate it we celebrate almost everything to get them into that practice of enjoying the moment um, so for me it's something that I'm learning how to do this uh, and running America I didn't celebrate it I was came home and I was quite down on myself that I didn't get the media coverage I was expecting. I looked at the negatives rather than the mm -hmm. positives. Uh, you know, I didn't um, change the world as I expected. Um, and I'm only now, three years later, nearly four years later, I'm starting to look back and go, wow, that was pretty cool. You, you ran across the United States of America, Tom. It's phenomenal. That you know, when I speak to an American and, and you know any American I come across, and I say, "Oh yeah, what state are you from?" I said, "I'm well, I'm from Kansas." Oh, Kansas, yeah, I ran across <laughs> Kansas. And I said, did, "You did what?" I said, yeah, I, I ran across you, your country. What do you mean you ran across my country? And, and it's like, yeah, that's a pretty cool thing to be able to say to people that uh, you know I ran across America. It's also a pretty cool thing to say that I'm ten years sober, and I do celebrate that. I'm very good at living in the moment uh, of looking at my calendar and looking at my phone and knowing how many days sober I am um, and, and celebrating the fact that yeah I am sober I, I can do that I celebrate the wins with the family more than, than myself um, but it's you know it's, it's, a, it's a skill you've got to You've got to perfect over What's this years, idea of you know success versus fulfillment like I remember hearing Tony Robbins talking about um, the guys that went to the moon for the first time and he was saying, 
wouldn't that be an incredible thing? And Tony was saying, but think about the day after they got back. They've just been to the moon. They've just achieved this ginormous feat of success. What's going to top that? What do you do next? When you wake up the next day after you got back and you feel empty and you've achieved everything you could ever imagine, the highest achievement of man, you know, going to space and landing on the moon. Now what? And that's the art of fulfillment. It, it is such a powerful image as well when you think I, mean, I, I obviously I didn't, I didn't go to the moon but I know exactly the emptiness you feel when you the day after um, you know so for example when I was in America um, the day after I finished the run I sat in a hotel room in the in a very nice hotel in in Times Square um, trying to figure out a way of opening the window to throw myself out the window hmm. um, you know what I mean it was that it was that dramatic mm. it was like this, this, you know, from the amazing this highs of arriving, arriving in Coney Island, um, but then the disappointment of when I arrived in Coney Island, there was nobody there. <laughs> it was like there was four people, four or five people. Now they were good people, and I loved the fact they were there to see me finish. But it was that disappointment of, you know, I didn't change the world. I didn't have, um, you know, a couple of hundred people or a couple of thousand people at the finish line, and it was almost that emptiness that I felt. Um, and, and I suppose sports people go through it all the time. You know, we have the, the sad news of Dan Vickerman, um, the Australian rugby Terrible. player who it, appear, it appears has, has taken his own life um, because he couldn't readjust after a sporting career. And, and I think I understand that more and more now of that, you know, when you're talking about fulfilment, um, it's very hard when you, you know, if, it, if he's played at his highest level in front of those big crowds with with all the adulation and then the crowd goes silent and then and um, now you're and working in an office and you're in an office. hearing about the yeah, office and politics <laughs> yeah and 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 worrying about spreadsheets and forecasts and and you know profit yeah, and the and printers loss. run out of ink and yeah yeah it's like you know there's no toilet roll in the bathroom and mm. your kids are kids are kids are complaining because the internet access is too slow or and you think jesus what how did it get to this point mm. how did it get to this so i can understand how you know that period of of and i think that's probably my three three almost four years since my run has been almost a, a state of mourning in, in a way um, where i was trying to get my head around the achievement of running across america because it was a massive thing to get your head around there's a, there's, a, there's a question I love to ask in coaching, and it's then what? If you yeah. ask someone what their goals are, and they, their goal is to make a million dollars, or their goal is to travel the world, or their goal is to pay off the mortgage, my question is always then what? Yeah. And then it's another thing, well, then what? And then what? Yeah. And it's, you yeah. know, it's not trying to be obnoxious, but it's trying to get them to see, well, what if? all your dreams came true what if you had everything all your needs met then what yeah it, it's a great question as well it's a, such a super part especially um to me who who knows that that dream that, that you go for sometimes doesn't pan out or feel the way you think it does um you know you don't get the um, feelings that you expected i expected to get to the finish line of coney island and my life to have been changed forever I don't know what the same word as sort of I came becoming from, sober. Yeah, I 
I think that's the thing. It was you expect that you wake up one morning. And I think that's why I chose America because it is, as you say, it's just like becoming sober. Because in the first two weeks of becoming sober, so my first two weeks of my journey, um, you, everyone pats you on the back and says, "Great stuff, well done." And then after two weeks, they they presume that you're just sober and you're just normal now. It's finished, yeah. Whereas, whereas for you, it's completely different. So the reason, the route I chose in America, I chose to run across the loneliest road in America, the Highway 50. And the reason I chose the loneliest road is because after those initial two weeks of everybody thinks you're great and everybody thinks you're doing a great job, then you go into this wilderness of you're on your own. Um, it is lonely. Um, people don't understand your continued daily struggle with addiction. People don't understand that after 10 years, I still every now and again have to ask myself, is today going to be the day that you relapse? Every now and again, I don't say it every day, but every now and again. So people forget that after the first two weeks of sobriety. People presume that you're just fixed. I get it with my clients, Nathan, where, where their partners, after two weeks and they have a relapse, they go, oh, this isn't working. Oh, hold on here. These guys, they're only two weeks into a recovery program. It's not going to happen overnight, and there are going to be stumbling blocks, and this person feels completely isolated and completely on their own, and that's part of the reason why I chose the, high, the loneliest road in America, uh, because after the two weeks of leaving San Francisco and all the email messages and Facebook messages, as soon as I got to Nevada, I had no reception, so there was nothing. Yeah. I had to do this on my own. I had to motivate myself to get up every day to run the 30 miles. I had to motivate myself every day to look after my blisters and make sure I didn't struggle. Um, I had to motivate myself, and that's the exact same with sobriety. And the exact same for anyone who's wanting to have fulfillment. When the lights are off, would you still do it? And that's, that's what I ask people. When the lights are off, when nobody's watching you, would you still do what you're doing? You know, if try it, try it. You know, on Facebook. If you're having success, try not putting it on Facebook, and see if you still do it. Uh, you know, for my personal training clients, when they're out running, try not to post it on Facebook every single run, and see if you're still motivated to run. Well, I love that. That's a great. That's something very real that you can check in with yourself. Yeah, and it's who am I know, doing this for? It's a very, really simple way of doing it and I think it comes I think it's actually a Muhammad Ali thing was saying when the lights are off um, you know that's when the work's done uh, you know it's not it's not the, in the ring that the, the champion has made it's 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 when the lights are off it's when he's doing the, the road work is when he's doing his training elsewhere would you still do it are you still motivated to do it if nobody's watching um, if nobody cares. So take me through some of the, the specifics of the run across the states, that those moments by yourself, that nursing the blisters, just some of the running specifics of how you how you achieve that feat. Well, as I, I, I alluded to earlier on, I'm not a talented runner. <laughs> I'm not a, a naturally gifted runner. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a basic average, you know, four-hour marathon um, 45 minute 10k not anymore at the moment because i've not run for a few months but um yeah 45 minute 10k so i'm not a, a naturally talented runner i can relate um, to this one because like i did i did the auckland marathon in four hours 56 and they were they were well, closing yeah. they were closing up all the the the, the arrival area since <laughs> i was uh, running in and the uh, sun well, was going down i'm with you i'm with you on that one there because i've done 
I've done my four hour marathons, but I've also done my five and a half hour marathons. Oh, I'm glad to hear um, it. You know what I mean? I've done those. I've done those days where it's just just been a slog. It's, it's just been tough out there, you know. So, um, so when I arrived in in San Francisco, I had no ability. I had no knowledge of long distance running. Um, my brother came with us, who had no background in running at all. My brother was driving the support vehicle. He had no clue as to. What, what was needed to support an ultra-distance marathon runner on a day-to-day basis. Um, uh, we had no nutritionists, we had no sports massage, we had no doctors, we had no medical support. We looked at a, a little Nissan car and uh, a lot of ambition. And we stood on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco and there were some runners who were congregating there. For, they were going on a club run and they were saying, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm running to New York. <laughs> and they were like looking at me like shut up you dickhead you're not going to run into New York no chance they were doing their morning thing like, no they were going out for a 10k and I'm looking there and I'm you know and I'd stored a load of fat so I looked quite overweight at the time because <laughs> for, the, for the month for, for the month going up to it I just stuffed my face with burgers because <laughs> I knew that I needed I needed the fat supplies yeah. so um, and I, I just looked like a complete nutcase on the Golden Gate Bridge and nobody believed me and off I went and started running through San Francisco and got to the um, the Bay Bridge, which you're not allowed to run across. You've got to drive across it. So I always say to people who so – there's some sticklers who say, well, you didn't technically run across. No, I did. I ran across the landmass. I, I, every now and again, I had to drive across a bridge because there was no pedestrian access. So if you want to pull me up on a technicality, that's fine. But I did what I set out to do. So I got across Bay Bridge, and my brother dropped me off the other side of Bay Bridge. And I realized I was lost. I was six miles into a 3,170-mile run, yes, and I was lost in the middle of Oakland. I'm thinking, I have no idea. I don't know where I'm going. I had no maps. Um, I had no, my, all the maps were all online with no internet access. And I'm thinking, shit, what do I do? And at that moment, I realized, just keep heading east. If you keep moving east, Tom, you'll do all right. Follow the you'll get to where you need to be. So I just kept moving east. I bought a little map book. So everywhere we went, we bought a map um, in every state. So we have a state map for every state in the US that we ran through. And we just chipped away at it. And we were pretty, I was pretty raw. The first, um, what I didn't realize is my feet would grow so much in the first 10 days. So my feet went from a size 10 UK size to a size 12 in the space of, what, 14 days. Wow. Is that a phenomenon that happens? Yeah, I've, I've heard it's the you know the constant impact on a day to day basis, and and I knew the heat would would make them swell up because it happened in the desert, um, but I didn't realise they would swell up that much, um, so it, it went from a size um, uh, size ten to a size twelve. So my my shoes were too small, and mm. um, so I'm running all the way through the Sierra Nevada in a pair of shoes that were two sizes too small. So you can imagine the blisters. Yeah until I could find a running shop, which is in the middle of Salt Lake City, or, or not Salt Lake City, um, uh, Provo. I'm not, uh, anyway, there's a, a, I can't remember the name of the city, um, that we f- managed to find a running store. But they had really basic running shoes. So I had to just buy any pair of basic running shoes. But, but I had blisters on blisters. Wow. Um, and, and it was just it was horrendous. And after, after two weeks on their own, I was like, this is just nuts. Um, I need to get some. It took you that long so to realize. By, by the time I got to Salt Lake City, 
Um, I managed to get to a decent running store and bought some new Hokers and some new Nikes and, and got myself sorted with some decent running shoes. But every night, I, my ritual was come home, take my socks off, get my trusted pin out and, and set about my feet, pop on the blisters. Wow. Um, and, and there was just every single night, there was more blisters in different spots, in between toes, under my ankles, under my arches, um, you know, everywhere I could get a blister, um, I, I got them. I got blisters under blisters. And it was it was one of those things that I hadn't planned for any of that. Um, I knew my feet were going to be sore, but I thought my feet were pretty tough, but nothing experience. If you can imagine 38 degrees centigrade um, on tarmac roads, so you can imagine the, the tarmac surface probably around about 60 or 70 degrees. So my feet were just melting um, on a day-to-day a -day basis. Um, so it was it was pretty rough in the first few months. Um, you know, after about six weeks, two months, I started to think, yeah, do you know what, maybe I can do this. But Where were you at at that point? Just pure thought. Um, I started to feel like I could do it when I got to Colorado. When I got halfway through the run, when I got to Cameron Pass, which was two miles high, um, you know, ten and a half thousand feet from the Rocky Mountains. And I realized then, you know what, I can do this. Um, I'm okay. I can I can get to the end of this. I'm halfway through. I've run across the Rocky Mountains. I can do this. And as I came out the Provo Canyon, which was a, a large canyon down off Cameron Pass, um, I, I looked behind me and I could see the Rocky Mountains. And I realized that Jesus Christ, Tom, if you can run across the Rocky Mountains, you can run across anything. Um, and it was literally, you know, you can do anything, brother. Um, so from that moment on, it was, let's do this. Now, don't get me wrong, it wasn't every day I was like that. There were some days when I thought, what am I doing here? I need to I need to sort this out. But most days I was, yeah, this is doable, we can do this. And g give me the stats, um, total distance, total time from coast to coast. It was three... 3,170 miles. Um, we did it in, I did it in 100 days, but I had five days off. So it's the equivalent of running 122 marathons in 95 days of running. Jesus. I lost, I lost, two, lost two stone in weight, um, but, and, I, and I literally lived off McDonald's and Subway. Hmm. Um, now, that, that's not, I'm not very proud of that statistic, but <laughs> I literally lived off burgers and fries and just trying to get the calories in calories and you know i got to a point where i couldn't eat um for a couple of days i had a really bad stomach and all i was drinking was milkshakes from mcdonald's because they're so high in calories yeah and just, just, and it just shows you what what it just shows you what crap's in this food <laughs> yeah. it was just horrendous my brother put two stone of weight on because he wasn't running he was just sitting eating the exact same amount of food as i was um and, and just sitting in the car all day so he <laughs> put two stone away he, back off. So he was getting stone. bigger i was going the other way you know so but yeah so so this the figures are are, are staggering i mean yeah. I, when people look at the map of america and see you know 3170 miles australia's two and a half thousand i think um from europe is from london to istanbul is 2100 miles so it's it i think people can't get in their head the sheer size of the united states it's well it's a five it's five absolutely. five and a half hour flight something like that and it does my head in. yeah and, and if you know from coast to coast five hours flying i mean for me what i try to say to people in the uk because people go yeah it's okay you run across america it's not that big and i go no if i ran from from the uk 
um, east, 3,170 miles, I'd end up in Iraq. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's and it's like, oh, right. It's extraordinary. And, and people start to, people start to visualize it better when they know, you know, I know going to the Middle East is a long flight. So flying to Dubai is five or six hours from London. So it's like, yeah, I get it now. I get how far that is. But you still get people, Nathan, who, you know, you say to people, oh, you've run across the United States of America. Yeah, but have you run the London Marathon? And it's like, you've not listened to anything I've said. <laughs> you still, I still get it. And it still winds me up when people say, yeah, but have you run London? Or, or I do park run every Saturday. And I'm going, I don't really give a shit. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you know, so there you go. So, yeah, it's a... It was a great thing to do, and you know, writing the book in 2014 was a great thing, very cathartic. And the book was called "It's Not About the Beard." You can get it on Amazon. Yeah, and why the title? Yeah, it's on, on a, um, part of the reason was obviously I grew a big beard when I. Part of my alter ego in America was Mountain Man. Mm. I created an alter ego uh, because I knew that Mountain Man wouldn't quit, whereas Tom Fitzsimons could. So I grew this big beard because when I looked in the mirror, it wasn't me. And also, it was a little bit of a, uh, you know, homage to um, uh, or, or honour to uh, Forrest Gump, and, and said, so, you know, it's a Forrest Gump beard. But when I came back, all people were interested about was the beard, and I'd say, yeah, around three thousand one hundred seventy miles across the United States, and people would turn around and say, yeah, but who conditions your beard? Oh God! And and then they'd say, who trims your beard? And how long are you going to keep the beard for? And I got really annoyed one day, and I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on you. Of course you can. But, um, but I said, I said it's not about the fucking beard. <laughs> and and I went, oh, that's a great title for a book. So when I went to the publisher, I said, I've got a great title for my book. And he went, what is it? He said, it's not about the fucking beard. And he went, I can't use that, Tom. You just can't put, it's not about the fucking beard on a, on a book title. It just won't do it. So I said, okay, well, it's definitely, it's just, it's not about the beard. And he didn't want to go for it, but it was my book and it was my thing. And it's not about the beard. It's about passion. It's about love. It's about recovery. It's about, you know, determination. It's about resilience. It's about brotherhood. It's about family. It's about, you know, togetherness with the United States. It's about all these different things, about religion. It's about faith. It definitely isn't about the beard, Nathan. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's and it was so passionate about that message that I didn't want it to become um, this thing. Just oh, that's the guy that grew the beard. Mountain man. It wasn't about that, you know. So it was the man who who did all those things. It was it was more than that. So the book is is it was, I'm very proud of the book. Um, it's not a bestseller. It's not a New York Times bestseller. It's not an Amazon bestseller. But it's my book. It's it's the 14-year-old who left school early with no GCSEs, no education, no degree, no English qualification, not a very good reader, but wrote a book. Um, and I'm very proud of the fact that, that that book has been reviewed and it's been read by hundreds of people uh, and, and they've enjoyed it and they think it's it's a good body of work. So I'm very proud of that yeah, fact. It's a great way um, to um, to learn more about you and learn more about your journey. And your, your new business is called The Addiction Architect. And right. if people want to reach out to you, what's the first thing you would do with someone now if they reach out and they've got a problem with addiction or they've heard this podcast, they relate to what you say and they want to work with you? How does the process look when someone first contacts you? The, the first thing I, I do with people, Nathan, is I have a conversation um, uh, and it's a fairly open conversation for them to 
understand whether they can work with me, but also if I can work with them. So I'm a firm believer, in, certainly in coaching, that um, you get the best out of your clients. There's some, there's some, uh, some connection. Um, you know, I've worked with some people where I've just, or I've, I've met with some. Do you know what? You're going to be better off with a different coach because we clash. Um, our personalities are too similar. So first things first, we have a conversation. We discuss what what's needed. Um, we discuss what what to be expected from sobriety. We discuss whether do they really want to be sober. Um, and, and and we discuss these things. Do they really want to be um, free from drugs? And we have that conversation. And that can be anything from 15 minutes to I think the longest was two and a half hours. And it turned out I didn't work with that person. <laughs> and that's strange, but we had such a good conversation. We, we decided that, yeah, do you know what? We're, we're probably just going to be a good connection rather than coaching clients. So we have to establish whether that's going to work. And then it goes back to, I, I work with my clients twice a week um, via Skype or face-to-face. Um, and we have coaching conversations uh, for the next three months um, where I put some strategies in place. And it's a fairly simple process. Um, I try not to use 12 steps. Well, I don't use 12 steps. Um, I'm not a one-day-at-a-time guy. Um, I won't um, you know, convince people to use a particular strategy. Um, it's, it's up to them. At the end of the day, coaching, a coach can only you know, give you the strategies up to you to use them. Um, as, as David Brailsford said in the Sky Team, coaches don't win gold medals. Cyclists do. Um, and I think that's very important, you know, that that you can only give them the tools. Mm. Um, so that's that's how I work with people. Um, I'm a firm believer in conversations being a great healer. Um, and my experience and my knowledge of the subject of addiction hopefully comes through. And I embody everything I teach. So if I tell people to meditate, it's because I meditate. If I tell people to exercise, it's because I exercise. If I, you know, if I ask people to, to look into their diet, it's because I've looked into my diet. Uh, I've recently just gone vegetarian, and and, and it's, uh, I'm seeing great value in that. So I embody everything I teach. Um, the last thing I want to do is to teach somebody something, and or to ask somebody to do something, or suggest that they do something, and then they find out I'm not doing it, um, or I don't believe it. And I, I find that with lots of coaches, where they they're coaching their clients, but doing completely opposite. And I don't think that works for me. So if you want to work with somebody who embodies the work, then I'm your person. If you want to work with somebody who uses different coaching techniques, possibly not. You know, I try to keep it as real and as honest as possible. Your website's addictionarchitect.co.uk and people can reach out to you through the website. And you're a great speaker as well. And will we see you back on the speaking circuit? I hope to be back on the speaking circuit. I, 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 I've spoken now in, mainly in schools and colleges and universities. Um, I've spoken to over 50,000 students in the last five years. Um, so I, I hope to continue that work because I'm, I love that stuff. I love standing up on stage and being able to spread, give my message out. Um, I, I'm hoping to work with some professional sports teams in the UK. I've actually just about to sign a deal with a large sports organisation here to work with their clubs at professional level. Um, so that's exciting. Um, speaking is probably one of the things that really does excite me. Um, I, it put me in a one-to-one networking meeting 
um, I, I struggle. Put me in front of an audience of a thousand people, and I'm I'm in my element. Um, so, you know, that's really the stuff that makes you know excites me. That that where I where you get the best out of me is when I'm up in front of an audience. Well, it's an inspiring story, Tom, and I'm, I'm so excited that we met. We met through Natasha, and she introduced us, and I, I, I'm so grateful to her because as soon as I started reading your story, I was so excited to connect with you and, and hear more about this and to see what you've done to come from, you know, a childhood that no child should really go through to now, you know, battle after battle after battle to get to this point now where you're through it and you're now inspiring and, and coaching other people. It's such a great story and congratulations you know thank you very much Nathan. it's been uh, it's a great great connect with you and um you know it's 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 just wonderful that we can have this conversation um, I, i'm always I'm, I'm i'm a bit of a technophobe at times but you know 42 years of age i'm speaking to a guy in, who's currently living in japan and 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 that's just insane that we can have these conversations it's pretty cool and and share that with people across the globe uh, and hopefully one or two people listen and I'm sure there's lots of people listen and maybe one or two people will reach out and say do you know what maybe addiction's not my way maybe addiction needs to be I need to get this under control so you know the, the power of this the power of the work that you're doing Nathan um, can't be underestimated um, being able to connect people um, across the globe is a very powerful thing I think podcasting is probably the best vehicle at the moment that I know of to, to spread a message to people who otherwise wouldn't hear it. Um, so, for me, thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for your work. And I can I apologise for it if you do hear any drilling in the background that my neighbours haven't helped. And if, and obviously Nathan, if this, if if you need to do this again, then just let me know. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think everybody would be so enthralled with your story they can um, ignore the, the banging in the background. Well, I hope so. If they, if not, then we'll, we might do another one. Yeah. And I'll, I'll I promise I'll. I'll create some sort of a zen space. Beautiful. Egg boxes on the wall to soundproof it. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Tom Fitzsimons. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I want to thank Tom for being so open and so vulnerable and sharing his incredible stories from addiction to recovery. You can reach out to Tom on his website, addictionarchitect.co.uk. As always, I'd love it if you could go onto iTunes, give this show a rating and a review on iTunes. It all helps. And don't forget to share it around and give it a like on Facebook at my page, Nathan R. Seawood. Thanks, guys. I'll see you next week for episode number 13 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Mm-hmm.